Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. What's up, space monkeys? It's a lovely evening here in Colorado. I'm not sure if you can hear the crickets. I'm in my home office, but I got the window open and the crickets are serenading me. It's quite nice. Hopefully you can hear them. It's giving me a good vibe, a nice, happy rhythm. Today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about upper cross syndrome, what it is, what you can do about it, why you should care all the bad things that it does to our body. And I really hope this information will be helpful for you. I see a lot of cyclists with pretty, we'll say severe presentations of upper cross syndrome. And this is really not optimal. It's also problematic in the world of cycling because of course, upper cross syndrome and cycling tend to spin each other up. That is, They magnify each other. They multiply each other. So if you have upper cross syndrome and you ride a bike a lot, you're making everything worse. This definitely goes in the category of I'm going to bash the living crap out of cycling right now. And my hope is that I educate you, the listener, on how cycling does cause postural distortions in your body. And now I'm going to give you some tools to recognize those distortions and then offset them. Because postural distortions are bad. Posture is the place from which all movement begins and ends. It's also defined by Paul Check as the instantaneous axis of optimal rotation. So when muscles surrounding a joint are distorted or the relationship between those muscles is suboptimal, meaning some are what might be called tight or over facilitated and others are too loose or uh, inhibited, then we get a distortion of the joint. This can happen in any joint in the body. 
And when these muscles act on this joint, this is what muscles do. They contract and then they move joints. This is how we do things like drink coffee or throw baseballs or pedal bicycles. Then the joint, of course, has excessive wear on it because it's being pulled on or moved in a fashion that is not the way it was really meant to. And then we get problems, pain, or we destroy our joints and then we end up buying our surgeon a new BMW. And I don't have a problem with my surgeon owning a BMW, but I prefer to spend my money on other things. So what is upper cross syndrome? Well, things you should know. Uh, one is that with the Instagram drop, uh, we're going to put some artwork up. I drew a picture of a cyclist and he illustrates my point a little bit. And also I'm going to do a blog on my website because blogging is cool for people who are over 50, which is me. And it's an in-depth article about this whole topic. It also has some artwork and some graphics and some explanations of what the heck Uppercross is. So this will help you. But I'm going to walk you through it on the pod in any case. So imagine you are standing next to someone and you look at them. So you're seeing them from a lateral view. You're looking at their left side. And when you see this person, if you were to drop a plumb line from the center of their ear, if they had perfect posture, this plumb would pass through the center of the shoulder the center of their elbow, the center of their hip, the center of the knee, and not quite the center of the ankle. It would pass just in front of the lateral malleolus, which is the side of the ankle bone, you'd call it. And this would indicate that the person had proper posture, that the skeleton was, we'll say, stacked, and that they don't have excessive muscle link tension relationship distortions, which would be good. Most cyclists do not present this way when you look at them. Most of us, I'll put us in the same category for a moment. We have all kinds of distortions from that center line. And the most obvious one will be that the head is in what is called forward head posture. That is your head is carried forward of the center line. And this is a big problem for a bunch of reasons. Upper cross syndrome consists of several things. I'll give you a list, but be it known first, be it known that primarily upper cross is caused or is likely to present in anyone who drives anything for a living. And when I say drives, what I mean is drive a car, drive an airplane, or drive a keyboard, meaning sit at a desk. That's most of us. So anytime we are kind of hunched over and staring at a screen, this also applies to people who own an iPhone or a supercomputer, a pocket-sized supercomputer, we'll say. It doesn't have to be an Apple one. We tend to crane our neck forward, and this causes forward head posture. And this is probably one of the biggest drivers of the creation of ultimately what is upper cross syndrome. So... When we're looking at our model from the side, our, our dear friend, if they don't have optimal posture and we see that their head is pushed into that forward position and we notice their ear is forward of the line that would pass through the greater trochanter, or we'll call that the center of the hip from the side view, what we would find is that they would have sort of an X 
and you could place that X with the center of it right on their throat. This is an imaginary X. Don't actually draw this on your friend with a Sharpie or anything. And on the front side of the X near the nose, you would say that they had weak cervical flexors. Cervical flexors are the muscles that you would use to lift your head off of a pillow if you were laying on your back, right? They would also have concurrently weak rhomboid and lower trapezius muscles. These are muscles that pull the scapula and shoulder down and back. So this is why you hear this cue in, for example, yoga classes a lot to pull the shoulders down and back. This is to activate the rhomboids in the lower traps. So that's one side of the X. It goes diagonally from, we'll say the nose to kind of down by the armpit, right? And out the back. And then the other side of the X, the imaginary X would be the tight muscles or the facilitated muscles. And the tight ones are your pectoralis, both major and minor. So the pec major is the big, I'm going to uh, act like an ape and beat my chest muscle. And the minor is the one underneath that. It's a muscle that uh, pulls your shoulder forward and it's hyper facilitated, meaning it's tight. Or another way to say that might be that it's hypertonic. It's kind of always turned on. Uh, the tone is increased and the length of the muscle fibers are shortened. That's why your shoulders are pulled forward. And then conversely or concurrently, the other part of the X would be going up from the nipple to out the back of your neck. And this would be the tight occipital, suboccipital, suboccipital muscles, the upper trapezius and levator scapula. So these are muscles that pull the chin up and keep really what they do is keep your head from falling off the front of your torso when you're standing. If your forward head posture is present. There are a few statistics floating around out there about the number of pounds of pressure that your head put on these muscles as your forward head posture increases. And it's something like for every inch you move your head forward or two and a half centimeters, you get about four and a half kilos of additional weight. That's a kind of a loose statistic because obviously it would depend on the length of the person's neck and also the weight of their actual head, but they're probably just basing this off an average size, probably white male skull, uh, well head, not just the skull and heads weigh a lot. So every, the point is, is that for every inch, you gain a lot of pressure on those neck extensor muscles. So imagine the posture of, oh, you've heard me refer to this in other podcasts, no doubt the question mark posture. This is when your spine actually looks like a question mark or Ichabod crane posture, right? The old man. And when we think about this old man who's hunched over, we're imagining this center line of the head falling forward of the center line of the body. And you can sort of visualize the weight of this head, putting stress on those muscles at all times. The muscles are going to be very long, very tight, because, uh, sorry, I misspoke there. They're going to be short and tight, most likely. And they're going to be chronically fatigued. And uh, the other character that comes to mind is, if you remember Star Wars, the original movie, that's episode four, A New Hope, which confused the heck out of us when they released it. And actually, we're smart enough to put episode four in there. 
had anyone had any idea. Remember in the bar scene, the character Hammerhead. Hammerhead is a perfect science fiction example of what upper cross syndrome looks like. He's got this huge lump at the top of his thorax, and then he's got this craning, almost uh, S-shaped neck to support his head. And when we have this hammerhead posture or this Ichabod crane posture, when it continues to be a problem or when it continues for long periods of time, the body responds to this stress. And it responds to the stress by adding tissue to the joints to support the structure because the muscles, even though the muscles will become stronger and shorter and tighter, they can only support so much of that stress. And remember, we're walking, you know, 5, 10, 20,000 steps a day, depending on how much you're you're walking and how active you are. You're also getting up and down from chairs and walking up and down stairs and doing all the things. So the muscles are strained by this movement and the joints, the vertebra in this case, are strained by this tiny motion, these microscopic motions that happen when you're walking. And this creates a piezoelectric charge in the tissue and the body responds to this charge. First, it lays down more connective tissue. It begins to build cross bridges between the fascia and the muscles, the tiny muscles surrounding the cervical vertebra that are being strained. And over time, these bridges get stronger and then they begin to form really what is cartilaginous material. And if they keep getting stronger over time, they become actual bone. So when we see grandma or grandpa cruising down the street and they've got this forward head posture, you might be inclined to run up to them and ask them to stretch their necks, but they may not be able to because they literally have to break bony tissue to do this. All connective tissue is really the same thing. It's just on a spectrum. Here's this, here's this thing again, this spectrum I'm always talking about. So, when we talk about connective tissue, we can look at one end of the spectrum, which is, we'll say something like synovial fluid. That's the fluid that fills joints and allows things to glide around together smoothly. And then on the other end, we have really dense, hard bone, solid bone, right? And then in the middle, we have various degrees of connective tissue. We have cartilage and ligament and tendon and labrum and fascia, right? the sinews of the body, we'll say. And these tissues are all on this continuum. And the definition of the continuum or the, the, the aspects of the continuum that give it definition are the water content and the density of the minerals, mostly calcium, but other minerals. So the, the less water and the more dense the mineral content is, the more towards bone it gets. And the body will use this uh, mummification, this live mummification to defend itself against excessive microtrauma or, or really what is poorly controlled movement. And here's a very fundamental and critical concept for everyone to understand. This is why so many aspects of exercise are so important. This is why we do high cadence drills in the early season. This is why we don't use machines ever ever, ever, ever in the gym. No leg press machines, no leg extension machines, no hamstring machines, no Smith machines, no bicep curl machines, no abdominal machines, none. Because 
we need to, when we add strength to a system, we need to concurrently train both the phasic and tonic muscles. The phasic muscles are the prime movers, the big movers in any joint. The tonic muscles are the more subtle postural muscles. They are the muscles that help control and guide the phasic muscles. They are the slow twitch muscles that have the endurance to guide the phasic muscles over multiple revolutions of a pedal stroke, for example. So when you add too much strength too quickly to a phasic system and neglect the tonic, we'll say system that go into the movement of any joint, then you create an imbalance. And here's a newsflash for you. Cycling already creates imbalanced athletes and we are riding on fill in the blank machines. We are riding on machines all the time. So the last thing we want you to do is go to the gym and try to gain strength using more machines. So avoid the leg press. I used a lot of leg press when I was a younger rider and I'm convinced it actually did me quite a bit of harm. We always want free weights because you need to be able to stabilize the weight. People love to go smash the leg press because they can put more weight on a leg press than a squat. Well, of course you can because you don't have to use your stabilizers. And this is working backwards. This is creating a bigger delta between your tonic muscles, your postural muscles, your slow twitch, tiny muscles that are so important and your phasic big movers, your prime movers. And everybody wants the big bang. They want to go to the gym and smash all the weight and talk about how big their male sex organs are. And that's great. But you're doing that at the expense of your future function. And what is the definition of elite athleticism if it is not to have simultaneously great performance and effort with very little sign of strain? It is, in cycling, suplex. It is the hummingbird pedal stroke, the sewing machine, the perfect sewing machine, the legs producing massive amounts of power for long durations, but with a quiet upper body, with quiet hips, and with little sign of effort. This is a well-trained athlete. This is a balanced athlete. But not if they've got upper cross going on. Okay, a little bit of a segue there, but a really critical point to illustrate. So when we sit on the bike, we spin up symptoms of upper cross. And you can see that in the first illustration of upper cross, which is forward head posture. Because if you stand, stand up straight, if you're not driving your car, don't do that. If you're driving your car, this tends to be problematic, even if you're in a convertible and you're tempted to. Stand up straight and then push your chin forward so your head hangs out over your belly, past your pelvis. And notice how your weight shifts in your feet and also notice the tension you feel in your neck at the back of your neck and possibly in the front of your neck as well. Now lift the chin and look up and you have duplicated the neck posture we are required to maintain in cycling. And there's a continuum, there's a relationship. The more arrow your position is, the more you will reinforce upper cross. So I'll unpack that a bit more, but that's a baseline rule. What are the other implications of upper cross syndrome? Well, thoracic extension is severely limited, if not non-existent. So 
What does that mean? Well, the thoracic spine is the upper part of your spine, we'll say, but it's not the most upper, the upper part of your spine. The most upper is your cervical spine. The top seven vertebra are your neck vertebra, we'll say. And the thoracic cage is below that. That's kind of where your rib cage is, right? So the spine in that area tends to be locked in flexion, meaning that it is curved forward more than it should be. And this also simultaneously changes the proper angle of your rib cage. And we can denote this by the angle of the first rib, which is the topmost rib. There's a normal range of angles for humans, men and women for that rib. And when you have forward head posture and upper cross syndrome, your first rib angle gets depressed, meaning it tilts forward more than it should. So this rotates your entire rib cage, really tilts it forward on the axis relative to the axis of your body. And this is easy to see because we see excessive kyphotic rounding. This is also a classic sign of the Ichabod crane posture. It's not just that the head is carried forward of the midline. It's also that the upper back is very rounded and has that sort of vulture like curve to it. And now just for a moment to understand the implications of this, if as Paul check teaches, every breath should be two thirds filling the diaphragm and the final one third of the deepest breath possible, filling the complete chest cavity all the way up to the collarbones. Well, if your thoracic spine is rounded over, can you reach the complete volume of air on inspiration on a maximal inhale in breath? No, you cannot, but that's the thoracic spine being locked in flexion or kyphosis is not the only limitation to breath. When this happens, we also shorten the muscles on the front side of the body, specifically the upper abs, the top part of the rectus abdominis is shortened. The rectus abdominis is the six pack muscle, or it's really a nine pack. If you're Lego Batman, he has an extra ab, but most of us have six or sometimes eight. And that's your Instagram muscle. It's kind of a superficial muscle that you'd use to maybe try to get laid, but it doesn't really do much. It's sort of, well, it does a lot of things. I, I don't want to cut it short, but what I'll say is it's sort of a bad guy in the world of muscles. If you know what you're doing, because it's a compensatory program or engram to use rectus abdominis when we ought to be using the inner core or the inner unit more often and recruiting that as our first mode of stabilization of the spine, the lumbar vertebra. If you want to know more about the inner unit and the deep core, you can listen to my podcast on that topic. Just search, um, second line alignment, deep core, and you'll find it. I have no, no doubt that you'll find it a complete faith in the internet search engines to do me good. So, when the rectus abdominis, especially the upper fibers, just under your, your sternum near the diaphragm are too tight, they pull the chest down. So you get this collapsed chest, right? And again, how are you going to take a full deep breath if the front side of your chest is smashed in and collapsed? We don't just breathe into our stomachs. We optimal breathing mechanics would involve expansion of the ribs in all directions. And how do they do this? They do this because the diaphragm, which is by the way, the ceiling of the 
inner unit, the deep core. It's the primary muscle of inspiration. And when the diaphragm contracts on inhale, it pushes your viscera out. Viscera are your guts. And it gives you that Buddha belly, that turtle dome of power that we like to have. And some pro riders have this. You can see it. If you look at the right moment on an inhale, you'll see they look like they're almost just swallowed a watermelon or they're pregnant. This is a good sign. It means I've got proper breathing mechanics. I've seen a few shots of Alejandro Valverde using this technique. Probably most pros do because if they were really, really poor at breathing, there's a good chance they wouldn't have made it to the world tour. Although it shocks me all the time what I see at the world tour. So that's one of our rules we have to respect. Just because someone is winning bike races at the world level actually doesn't mean that their body mechanics are optimized. That's a really common misunderstanding about pro-level athletics in cycling and in other sports. Now, correcting that person's mechanics or improving them without ruining their performance, that's an entire other discussion. I'm not saying I could go in there and cue Alejandro Valverde or Contador, anyone, and get them to fix their, their shit. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's a, that's a whole other thing. However, I will say there are a lot of pros out there riding around with pretty messed up issues. Cycling's not good for your body on the whole, but we can do lots of things to fix that and still enjoy the sport that we love. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. So when the the front side of your torso is kind of almost folded over or contracted over the diaphragm, then this diaphragm won't be able to push down and let your viscera push out. Now, nobody likes to have their stomach stick out when they inhale, unless they know what they're doing, because no cyclists want to look fat. That's just not cool. And you'll be frowned upon and thrown out of your tribe. But the reality is that would be proper breathing technique is to allow the diaphragm to distend the viscera. Why does it do this? Well, lungs aren't muscles. Remember, they're just sacks of stuff. And so in order for the lungs to fill with air, muscles need to make room. So when the, when the diaphragm contracts, it pushes everything down and away from the lungs and then the lungs can fill with air. That's kind of how it works, right? There are other muscles involved in inspiration, of course, too. Uh, intercostals being one of the examples, but this is the one of the most primitive um, ways to look at breathing. Superficial ways, we'll say. Additional implications of upper cross syndrome include, but are not limited to, well, we have increased cervical lordosis. What does that mean? Well, that's really kind of saying it's part of forward head posture, but it's worth mentioning. Cervical lordosis is an increase in the curve of the cervical spine, which are the first seven vertebra when you're starting from the top. That is the atlas, the skull. And when you descend down and look at those vertebrae, there's a normal curve. In fact, the spine has normal curves when the muscle length tension relationships are not distorted. And so when we take these curves into excess, either we flatten them or we over curve them, then it causes problems. And one of the more obvious implications from this is that a lot of the cranial nerves run through the spine and the spinal cord. 
So if we flatten or increase the curvature of the spine from where it was really kind of designed to be, then we run the risk of causing problems with our nervous system, right? The other big sign of upper cross syndrome is protracted shoulders. So back to our example of our friend, we're looking at him or her from the left side and we're observing their posture. And we drop this plumb line from the ear and it should pass through the center of the shoulder. Now, you got to use a little bit of x-ray vision if you're going to do this and sort of get a feel for what's going on. It's not rocket science. We don't have to be overly precise with our anatomy. You can more or less see, just look at sort of the ball of the shoulder, kind of look at the center of the deltoid. We're looking for the center of the glenohumeral joint. These are more or less the same place. And if it's excessively forward from the center line, then boom, you've got some shoulder protraction. So when the center of that shoulder joint is in line with our plumb, then that's our baseline reference. And we can use sort of a cardinal direction system to sort of figure out where the shoulder is, right? So if we're looking at someone from the left side, so their nose is pointing to our left, then using the cardinal system, the west, if the shoulder center is to the west, that would be protraction. If it was to the east, that would be retraction, right? If it was to the north or elevated towards the ear, that would be elevation. And if it's depressed, that would mean that the center of the shoulder was dropped to the south, right? So north, south, east, west, pretty simple. What most cyclists have is a combination of protraction that is moving the shoulder to the west or toward, towards the center line of the body, towards their neck, uh, the front of their neck, I should specify. And we have to be very precise when we use anatomical cues. It may seem over pedantic or trite or annoying to you, but uh, it's really easy. This is a bit of a pet peeve of mine when people say, oh, arch your back. Arch your back can mean anything. Arch in which direction? We have to specify what you mean by that. People throw around a lot of colloquial terms when they're talking about anatomy. So there's a very specific system of language that's used to describe anatomical reference points so that when we have these discussions, we know what the heck someone else is talking about. So I'm trying to simplify that as much as possible and talking a lot, which probably means I'm not doing it. In any case, when we have a protracted shoulder, that means the shoulders moved towards the front center line of the body, or you can think about the shoulders coming in towards the nipples. This is really common in cycling. And when I do a fit, one of the first observations I make is when someone's riding, I ask them to ride in the hoods and I take a video or a photo or both. And then I just place a ruler along my iPad and I put it at about the center of the hip or the greater short canter and about the center of where their deltoid is. And then I look at the curve of the spine and in the hoods, I prefer that that spinal curve more or less matches the ruler. And that's definitely not often the case. And then we look, well, where is the flexion in the spine? Is it lumbar flexion? Is it thoracic flexion? Is it excessive circle, cervical extension? Meaning are they sticking their neck straight up kind of towards the, the sun, right? And we can have a discussion around whether that flexion of the spine or extension of the cervical vertebra are causing problems and why we might want to avoid that but I also look for the center of the shoulder on that same line. And in a perfect tidy universe, when the rider 
hinges forward to sit on the bike and grabs the bars, their shoulder would more or less remain on that line. But probably, I have never broken down any statistics on this, but I would guess about 85 or 90% of riders tend to protract the shoulders, meaning they drop the center of the shoulder forward to reach the bars. And there can be various reasons for this. The most common one is that the saddle is really uncomfortable and the nose is causing increased perineal pressure, especially in the anterior aspect of your grundle, meaning you're getting pressure in your junk when you roll your pelvis forward. So one of the ways to offset that pressure is to project your shoulders forward to push your spine back. And that helps you rotate your pelvis away from the nose of the saddle. This is really common. But also, even when people have pretty optimal saddle setups, the right shape, the right cutout, good ability to hinge at the hip, it's very common for people to protract the shoulder forward to reach the bars. And also common for people to elevate the shoulders towards their ears, especially if they're riding in arrow bars, because this is literally the turtle position. This is what we're taught to do because it's arrow. So when you look at someone from the front, if you look at yourself riding in your arrow bars in the mirror, you can broaden your shoulders and put them away from your ears in that neutral position. And then you can elevate them and protract them and pull them up towards your ears. And you can see that the frontal area of your shoulder basically disappears. And someone who is good at protracting and elevating their shoulders will probably have a low CDA and will do better in time trials. In fact, it's probably one of the more overlooked things about TT position. I would say it's common for fitters to focus on the angle of the torso, meaning the height of the bars, and then next, maybe the angle of the forearms. It's easy to overlook the shoulder position. So when we look at this, we have to consider that being aerodynamic on a bike is nothing short of an act of contortionism, straight up. That's what it is. And so back to our spectrum that I mentioned at the beginning, the more aerodynamic you are trying to be on a bike, the more likely you will spin up, up or cross. And this is one of the biggest reasons why, because you're trying to hold your head super low, drop your chin down when you're on the bike. That's effectively pushing your chin forward over your hips in standing as far as you can. So you're stretching the heck out of your neck extensors at an extreme position. So you're stretching them. That's maybe a little bit good, but you're also holding them at a pretty extreme position. So not so good, but you're also elevating and protracting the shoulders a lot. And this is why cyclists sometimes are pretty recognizable when they're cruising around at the grocery store because their shoulders are up by their ears. Now, if you're a person who types a lot, and also if you're a woman, I'll say as a broad strokes observation, women tend to hold stress in their shoulders more than men. It's not always true, but it's commonly true. Then, and you're a woman and you're a time trialist, then the chance of you having upper cross are pretty astronomical. If you're a guy and you spend a lot of time in aero bars, the same thing is true. So the onus for you time trialists out there who just love to go fast in the aero bars, I say that all with a judgy tone as though I haven't done it a million times myself, your onus is to undo your own upper cross. And I'll get into a bit of ideas on how to do that. On the other end of the spectrum, we have mountain bikers and cyclocross racers, and they are less likely to have as many challenges with upper cross and as many postural distortions from cycling. Why? Because their position is more upright. So that means they don't have to crane the neck as far 
up. We'll say when their torso is horizontal. So when your torso is pretty much missile shaped and horizontal, you've got to, you've got to crane your neck up and put it into cervical extension in order to see where you're going. And the more vertical your face is, the more you verticalize the face is the term I use sometimes, which probably doesn't really make sense. I don't think verticalize is actually a word. The more you do that, the more strain you're going to put on the cervical vertebra or your neck, your neck spine. And this is not a good thing to do. It causes a lot of, a lot of issues. People can get headaches, chronic neck pain, chronic back pain. If you ride a bike and you have chronic pain in your back or neck, or if you, every time you get on the bike, neck pain or back upper back pain develop and they get worse as you ride more, you almost for sure have upper cross going on. So this is how you can start to self-diagnose, right? Also, if you sit at a desk and you're not moving the body a lot, you're not getting up regularly to stretch, you're not uh, using alternative forms of deskness, whatever that may be, standing desk or bouncy chairs or kneeling chairs, etc. then there's a good chance you're fostering some upper cross stuff, distortions. You're, you're cultivating these symptoms most likely. So we've got it. It's real simple. You got to undo it. The fascia in the body responds to two things, really high intensity or very long duration. So when you sit at a desk for four or five, eight hours a day, and then you go ride your bike, well, I've got bad news for you because if smoking is the new sitting, wait, I said that backwards. If sitting is the new smoking, then well, cycling is just more sitting. So this is one of the complications with riding a bike. This is why it does not develop good posture, healthy posture. When the shoulders are elevated and protracted, the glenohumeral joint, the shoulder joint is not stable. If you want proof of this, just go do 10 pushups with your shoulders jacked up to your ears and pulled forward towards your nipples as low and as high as you can get them. As uh, Let me say that again, anatomical reference as protracted or pulled towards your nipples and as elevated towards your ears as you can get them, do 10 pushups that way and then hold your shoulder in a stable position, a neutral position. And if you're, if you think you have a baseline of upper cross syndrome and you have protracted and elevated shoulders, then you're going to want to pull your shoulders down and back and feel the difference. Most likely you'll be able to register this right away. If you can't then that means your upper cross is well-developed and you got problems to undo. If you can't feel it, but you can see it and you know it's there, then that means your baseline is pretty jacked. Sorry. But this means that you won't have a shoulder, a stable shoulder, and this is obviously problematic on the bike. I mean, first of all, even if you're just a roadie, you got to be able to drive the hands into the bars to corner effectively. And if you're only using your butt and you're steering with your hips and driving with the outside foot and not using your arms, you're only getting about 45% of what you can get out of your handling. Just a hint. But if you're a mountain biker and you don't have a stable shoulder, you are screwed or a cyclocross rider or even a gravel rider for that matter, because we have to have stable anchored shoulders in order to drive the bike on uneven surfaces. That is dirt. So the more stable your shoulder girdle is, the more 
centered the glenohumeral joint is and the less ligament laxity you have in that system, the more likely it is that you can control the bike during challenging handling situations without losing control and dumping it, right? If your shoulder ligaments are super lax, there's a series of anterior ligaments that run across the front side of the shoulder. So if you take your finger and touch the end of your collarbone near the shoulder, and then just go a little bit down towards your elbow from there, about two centimeters, and just feel the front side, the round sort of sphere of your shoulder right there. The, the forward part of the, we'll say the, the sphere shape of your shoulder. That aspect of the shoulder right there is relatively unprotected. And there are ligaments that run across the front side of it. These are the anterior shoulder ligaments. And when our shoulder is pulled forward and up, these ligaments are put under stress all the time. Then when you go to apply force to the shoulder, the shoulder joint, the glenoid is not centered properly in the joint, in the labrum of the shoulder. And this causes problems. This means the muscles have to overcompensate for this joint that's out of whack, just like I described at the beginning of the pod when we're talking about length tension relationships. And then you lose the endurance to handle your bike over multiple corners. So if you're doing the crusher and the tusher or really long, hard gravel races, and you're starting to lose control of your bike towards the second half of the race, the business end of the race, and your bars are going all over the place. And no matter how much you grab them, you just can't quite seem to keep things in control. This is one of the reasons why. It could be one of the reasons why the other sign that your shoulder's not stable, that it's protracted is what's called winging of the scapula. So if you look at our friend, our, our good model who's standing with their left side facing us, and you just observe the position of their scapula, the scapula is like this triangular sort of bone that sits on the back of your rib cage. And it should sit kind of flush with the rib cage. It's a sort of curl around the rib cage, but if you see the pointy part sticking out of the back of our model, kind of like some bat wings, this is called winging of the scapula. And it's a sign that the shoulder is protracted or rolled forward towards the center line. And with that, the scapula is glued to the rest of the shoulder. So everything's using as moving as one unit. And that's pulling the back part of the scapula away from the ribs. And that's why you see that little pointy aspect of it. This is just another indicator that the shoulder is not stable. It's not a good sign. It's a sign that your pectoralis muscles are probably really short and tight, which would be quite common in cycling. Also, I'm going to point out that mountain bike bars that don't have enough back sweep will cause this problem. Road bars with flat tops or... God forbid, forward swept tops like the, I'm going to beat up on a couple bar manufacturers here for a minute. There are a few bar manufacturers that make bars that are forward swept from the top. One of them is the Vision 5G. This bar is a fitting nightmare because it pulls your shoulders into a protracted, internally rotated position. And I'm going to be brutal for a minute. These idiots claim that this bar is ergonomically correct. This is completely wrong. This is totally backwards. This is why I worked with coefficient cycling to help design the wave bar, the RR bar and the AR bar. I, I worked on the RR bar a bit. I gave them feedback on the geometry and whatnot, tested some prototypes. 
And this bar is made with back sweep and up sweep, which is correct if you want to maintain an anatomically neutral shoulder while you're on the tops. Mountain bike bars got it partly right. They have a back sweep, but they are downswept. Good job, mountain bikes. You screwed that one up. You don't downsweep your hands when they're in a neutral anatomic position. You upsweep them, meaning your second knuckle or your pointer finger knuckle is higher than your pinky knuckle when you bring the hand forward, not lower. So anyway, uh, on that topic, mountain bike bars, one of the better ones I found is the SQ Labs bars out of Germany. I have no association with this company. I was a dealer. Now I'm trying to be dealer again. They got bought and sold. I'm not sure what's going on. If you ask key labs guys are out there, hit me back with my dealer app, please. Cause I'd love to carry some of your bars in my shop because they make a mountain bike bar with actually that actually has enough back sweep. Most mountain bike bars do not have anywhere near enough back sweep. Eight to 10 degrees is not enough, especially when you ride a bar that's really wide. If you're in the 800 range, this is way too much width and not enough back sweep for most riders with normal shoulders, but people love the feeling of the wide bar because it makes them lazy and they can steer things with less effort. They can keep the front wheel stable with less effort. That's really what the wide bar is about. Longer lever on the width, shorter lever on the stem means the, the wheel has less flick, has less of a tendency to go sideways when you're doing a rock drop or a drop off of a big ledge or a, going through roots or rock gardens or whatever. That's all it is. It's just a function of leverage and people get addicted to the extra wide leverage because more is always better. So um, SQ Labs makes a bar that has a 12 degree sweep and they make another one that has a 16 degree sweep. And I have the 16s on my bikes and I love that bar. It is so much better, much more neutral wrist, much more neutral shoulder, excellent hand purchase, drive through all the corners. It's the bomb. I don't have particularly narrow or wide shoulders. I'm like a I don't know, like a 40 suit or whatever. So I'm not a particularly wide shouldered person, but also on that point, some fitters will use the distance from the AC joints or the, uh, the shoulder width we'll say to set bar width during road bikes or gravel bikes. I don't really agree with this because if you have a protracted shoulder or forward head posture and upper cross syndrome, then you're taking a measurement that's just going to enable a rider to ride in this position all the time. What is the goal? Even if your goal is to be an aerodynamic cyclist, a time trialist, you want to be state TT champion or world TT champion, whatever your goal is, that's awesome. And your primary function should be to have a strong, stable shoulder that can support you in all these disciplines of cycling and also be a healthy shoulder for normal life. It should not be the case that every time you bend over to pick up a three gallon jug of water, your shoulder drops six inches below your spine and protracts because you don't have the stability to pull that jug of water up and actually contract your subscapularis and your rhomboids. This is not how a functional human works. So when we do a one-armed row with a kettlebell or a dumbbell, my preference is to keep the shoulder neutral and train subscapularis and rhomboids. That is the, the muscles that pull the shoulder into neutral and prevent it from protracting during that weighted one-armed row. This is the best way to train most cycling muscles in my opinion, because most cyclists have protracted shoulders. So we need to undo that pattern in our strength. Also, I will point out that when you are sprinting and you're pulling on the bars, 
if you have a stable shoulder, you're going to pull on the bars better. And what do you think has more muscle? Your the sum of the weight of the glutes, quadriceps, hamstrings, and calves, which puts it on the pedal, or the sum of the weight of the triceps, biceps, forearm muscles, and lats, which muscle group wins? Well, I'll let you figure that one out. It shouldn't bake your noodle too much, but I'll say this. If you are also doing this with a protracted shoulder or poorly stabilized shoulder joint, then you're really screwing it up because you're not gonna be able to pull in the bars as far as you, as hard as you can push down with the, on the pedals. So the implications of upper cross syndrome, that's where I want to go next. I've covered a lot of this, uh, you know, really the big problem with the forward head posture is that it's going to, for most riders, the implication is that it's going to cause upper back and neck pain while riding. And part of the inspiration for this project, this blog and podcast was I've had a run of athletes come through my fit studio in the last few weeks that have had ripping cases of upper cross syndrome. And, you know, for a long time now, I've realized that there's been a strong connection between off the bike, upper cross, that is desk posture, Ichabod crane, question mark, desk posture, and on the bike, upper cross. But it, it wasn't really crystal clear to me how much the two multiplied each other until recently. So if you have a desk job and you're riding your bike a lot, then you've got to do some corrective exercises. The second implication is the rounded shoulders, the poor stability of the glenohumeral joint, the shoulder joint. That's what we just talked about. You can't push and pull on the handlebars. You're not gonna be able to handle the bike correctly. During mountain biking, during cornering and road bikes, you're not gonna be able to steer your gravel bike over loose terrain and ruts and washboard effectively. You get fatigued, you go down. In a, on a mountain bike, the implications are pretty obvious, right? We have to have a stable shoulder joint in order to have force vectors going, we'll say generating force vectors through the body to stabilize the bars and also deflecting and absorbing those force vectors that are coming from the bars, even with our super duper Kashima coated fork legs, silky suspension. And then the third big implication of upper cross is that when the symptoms or the distortions get really extreme, it's going to impact your breathing because the torso is basically folded over the diaphragm. You're flexed over the diaphragm and that's going to compress the front side of the body. And then the lungs can't do their job, which is simply to fill with air and then oxygenate the blood and also expel CO2 and other stuff, right? Remember the, the body has several points of detoxification and one of those is lungs. So you don't just get rid of CO2, you get rid of other stuff. That's why sometimes people have really, really, really bad breath. That's a sign that even though they might be pretty on the outside, they're not so pretty on the inside. I see through you. That was a weird song. So one key point on that breathing, if the diaphragm is not free to function properly to descend, remember the diaphragm is like an umbrella shaped muscle that pushes the viscera down. And if it's not free to do that, then you've got two problems. One is you're not breathing as effectively as you could be. And all two is that because the diaphragm is the ceiling of the inner unit of core, then you have a core problem. So if you have a breathing dysfunction, you have a core dysfunction. 
So now we can see how upper cross syndrome can actually impact the hips and driving direct power into the bike. Because if your core isn't stable and your lumbar spine and hips are moving excessively while you're pedaling, then you may have lower back pain. So if you have lower back pain, in particular on long, hard rides or long climbs, and you've got upper cross, let's just say that these are probably related. Or to borrow an expression from various other sources, as above, so below. If your upper cross is really flared up, it's going to have postural implications for you in the lumbar spine or the lower back area. And the most obvious way to illustrate this is to go back one more time to our example of our friend standing in line at the coffee shop and we're observing them from the left side. And if they push their head forward, well, how are they going to keep the head from falling off the front of their body? Well, yes, eventually over time, they're going to build our hammerhead neck or our Ichabod crane spine, but you can't just do that overnight. That takes years. So in the short term, in order to do that, they're probably going to push their hips forward under the weight of the head. And this is going to cause additional postural distortions. So if the hips are forward to the center line, this is called sway back. And this has its own set of implications. That's one outcome. Another one is upper cross and lower cross. So we, I can unpack the layers of these postural syndromes down the road in other pods, get into lower cross and layered syndrome a bit. I think it would be useful. If it would be useful to you, let me know. Hit me on the gram. I'm going to dissuade people from sending me messages on the private thingy because I think that platform sucks. It doesn't seem to work for me half the time, probably because I'm just too freaking old. Just drop me a note in the comments, please, if you'd like to hear those. So if you have a breathing dysfunction, you have a core dysfunction. And if you have upper cross, you probably have some lower cross or you're working on growing it. Okay. So what do we do about all this? There's a really basic list I'll give you, and I'm not going to unpack the specifics of every single stretch or exercise here. I'm not going to tell you how many reps and sets to do, but I will point you in the right direction. And some of this info will be in the article I send. Also, I post on my magical website. That's colbypierce.com. Oh, lovely interwebs. Thank you for gracing me with the ability to put my name into a website. So here's the thing we got a. This is PT 101. This is the crooked wheel analogy. When your wheel is out of true, that means it has some spokes that are too tight and some that are too loose. And how do we make it straight? Well, we tighten the loose spokes and we loosen the tight spokes. Same thing in the body. So we're going to tighten the loose spokes, which means we're going to strengthen the muscles that are stretched or that are um, inhibited, not turned on. They're long and loose is the idea. And then we're going to stretch the muscles that are hyperfacilitated or tight. So when we have upper cross, the muscles that are tight are the muscles at the back of the neck, the extensor. So we're going to use a neck extensor stretch. We're also going to stretch our pectoralis major and minor. You can do this on a stability ball or using a door frame. One point of caution, if you undergo a stretch for your pec minor or pec major, you want to be a little careful about how you position the shoulder. Because remember those anterior ligaments I was describing that run across the ball shape of the front of your shoulder. 
If you're stretching, you're trying to stretch your pec minor or pec major by putting your elbow on a door frame, for example, or a stability ball, you want to maneuver your body and drop the chest towards the floor or forward until you feel the stretch in the muscle, not in the ligaments on the front side of the shoulder. If you're stretching the ligaments on the front side of the shoulder, you're just making your shoulder worse. You're increasing the anterior laxity, the, the laxity of the anterior ligaments. This is not what you want to do. So a little detail that's pretty important. Make sure you feel the stretch in the muscle. You can also do a stability ball stretch, which is just where you lay over the stability ball with your face up towards the ceiling. And we're working here on thoracic extension. Remember your thoracic spine, your upper spine is kind of hunched forward. It's rounded forward, collapsed forward. We want to undo this. So you need to open the spine, push your sternum towards the ceiling. You can also do a prone cobra stretch. This is where you lay on the floor on your stomach and you're going to lift your sternum up off the ground. And there are two ways to do this. One is you can put your hands onto the shoulders and you can push up gently. This tends to focus the stretch more in the lumbar spine. We can offset this and make it more in the thoracic spine by squeezing our glutes. Clench your butt cheeks together. Pretend there's a thousand dollar bill in between your butt cheeks and a windstorm. That's a good one that one of my friends gave me that I will never forget. Another way to do a similar stretch is to lift the sternum off the floor, but instead of having the pushing the hands onto the shoulder, you're going to push them. You're going to extend the elbows back towards your hips, lift the hands off the ground and rotate your hands externally. This means your thumbs up towards the ceiling, like you're going to try to hitchhike. So you're lifting the sternum, lifting the hands, lifting the chest off the ground. Be careful not to also go into cervical extension. We're not riding a bike. We don't need to make our face vertical. You want to tuck your chin and keep your head in line with the torso. We're not looking up the road. That exercise is something I pretty much do almost every day. And I'll hold it for 30 seconds at a pop. Ideally, you want a total to make a difference on your postural exercises. We want about three minutes of time under tension total in a session. So I'll do a few sets of that or a few reps rather. You can also use a dowel to stretch out your shoulders. One exercise I like to do with my clients is I'll just grab the dowel. I'll hold it horizontally by my hips and I'll put my palms on the, on the dowel at either end. And then I'll just raise the dowel overhead and drop it behind me. So it's horizontal, but now it's next to my butt. And then I'll raise it overhead and drop it in front. Then I'll do round the world. So keeping the elbows locked, I'll pull my right hand over my head. And now the dowel is vertical next to my body. Left hand is by my hip, right hand is by my head. Then I drop the right hand behind me. Dowel is now horizontal by my butt. Then I pull the left hand over my head, keeping the elbow locked. The dowel is now vertical next to the right side of my body with my right hand near my right hip and my left hand over my head. And then I drop the left hand down and the dowel is horizontal in the start position in front of my hips. Can you follow verbal directions? Some people can't. So I say that in jest. Some people are only visual learners and they have to see a video, but just try it. See if you can make it work, man. I might put some photos of some of the stuff in the blog if I have time. We'll see how that all goes. Another good one is a scratch stretch. So you can use a dowel or a towel and you hold it 
uh, vertically along your spine. One arm is behind your back in the low position. The other is behind your back in the, we'll say high position with the elbow up. And you can either use the upper arm to pull the lower arm higher or the lower arm to pull the upper arm down and you get different effects. But more or less, all of those are good for what we're trying to accomplish. Again, remembering the rule that we want to keep the shoulder in a stable position so you're not putting stress on the anterior ligaments. We're also not trying to pull the shoulder high. So anytime you're doing any of these exercises, if the shoulder starts to elevate above the level of the collarbone, then we want to, we want to chill out a little bit. The point is to create a more stable shoulder, not to pull it into elevation. This is where it already is most of the time. We don't want to pull it into protraction. This is where it is when we ride a bike most of the time. We're trying to build shoulder stability in a more neutral position. Here's the last one I'll go over. This is a great one. This is a good activation before a ride. Find something that's about eight, maybe 12 centimeters high. It's got to be soft, relatively soft. It could be a pillow. It can be like a Dyna disc, which is like a blue inflatable disc thingy with texture on one side. It can be like a soft, small pillow. It can be a little tiny, they make little tiny stability balls, something like this. And you're going to put it on the ground and you're going to lay down on it on your back. And you're going to put the apex of this soft, squishy thing right about where your heart rate monitor strap would be. And you're going to lay on it and let your sternum come up towards the ceiling, meaning your shoulders are going to drop away. And then you're going to push your hips up towards the ceiling, right? So now we've got a little tension in the glutes. We're holding our hips in somewhat neutral, we'll say, meaning we could draw a straight line from the shoulders to the hips to the knees, and the hips would be in that line. And we're going to hold that position, so a little bit of a bridge position. And then we're going to tuck our chin towards our chest. So drop the chin down towards your clavicles. And then we're going to make snow angels on the ground with our arms. You can have a slight bend to the elbows if you want, the only thing that really matters is your pinkies have to be touching the ground throughout the entire arc of the angel. It's the arc angel, pinky angel. Try it with bent elbows, try it with straight elbows. So we're doing multiple things here. We're working on our thoracic extension. We're also giving ourselves a little isometric glute firing and hamstring firing. You can drive through the hips a bit. That's good. Most cyclists will benefit from that. We're tucking the chin, so we're working on our cervical flexors because we're using our neck muscles to lift our chin up, our head away from the ground, and we're tucking. And that's a good thing to offset forward head posture. At the same time, working those flexors, we're also stretching the extensors, and we're loosening our shoulders up a bit. And we're doing it in a way that's going to encourage the scapula to free itself from the rib cage, but also in a proper position. So I really like this exercise. It does, I think my count was five things there. And anytime we can kill five birds with one rock, well, I don't throw rocks at birds. So I really don't like that expression. Birds are my friends. But analogously, you understand the idea. We can do five things with one action. How's that? Some of what I just gave you were more active activation type movements. This is what I'll say. Before you exercise, we want to stretch the tight muscles. This means that when you get on the bike, you're going to have a little better posture. If you're going to the gym and you are trying to do, for example, a front squat, 
and your pecs are really tight because you haven't stretched them, well, it's not likely you're going to be able to get the bar in the right place. Or even a back squat. If your pecs are super tight, you may not be able to hold the bar in the right place, especially when you descend deep into that squat. If your thoracic spine is locked up and stuck in flexion, you're definitely not going to be able to do a front squat properly. So if you're trying to make strength in the gym and you're going in with really tight muscles, then you got problems. Now, here's the caveat. When you stretch, if you stretch statically, meaning you hold a stretch for long duration passively and just hang on to it, that is, it's a static stretch, you inhibit the muscle you are stretching. This is why stretching got a bad rap a few years ago. There was uh, an article that went around about how sprinters, track sprinters, not cycling track sprinters, but running track sprinters, did some stretching and then their sprint performance sucked afterwards because I think they stretched the hamstrings. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've read this. And then everyone was like, oh, stretching's bad. Well, this is a very myopic conclusion from what we can learn. What this tells us is static stretching inhibits muscles. So if you know that certain muscles are hypertonic or are overly short and contracted, then we can use inhibition of muscles at the right moment to accomplish something, right? If a muscle's hypertonic and you want to turn it off, then static stretching is probably a pretty good method to use. But I don't think we want to use it before we exercise. So before we ride or lift, we would want to use dynamic movements. So this can mean moving with control, not quickly, moving to the end point of a joint range and touching it and then coming out and touching it and coming out. And I prefer to work with the breath. Paul's rule is really simple. Anytime you're moving towards the fetal position, you are exhaling. Why? Because you're contracting around your viscera and your lungs. So you're, you're squeezing the air out of your lungs as you move towards the fetal position. So this rhythm works with that technique. And then as you expand or move away or supinate away, you inhale. So you move away from the fetal position, you inhale, you move towards the fetal position, you exhale. Now, this is for things like dynamic warmups, for stretching, for work in exercises, for body weight exercises. When you lift heavy, you've got to break that rule a bit and be more focused on bracing during the core part of the movement, especially during the sticking point, right? Because what you're doing is using breath as a valsalva during heavy lifts in order to stabilize the spine and the viscera. This is what pr proper breathing technique and core is about during really heavy lifting. So we break that rule then, but for other exercises in general, you can apply this technique exhale on moving towards fetal position, inhale on moving away from fetal position. So a great way to warm up, for example, your lower back before a ride, do a supine hip extension back on ball or a shebob. That is you put your shoulders and neck on a stability ball. You push yourself into a tabletop position with your thighs horizontal and your shins vertical. You lower your butt to the ground and that's moving towards the fetal position. So you exhale, then you inhale as you come up to that tabletop position and expand the lungs and push the glutes all the way to the top to activate the glutes. This is a great exercise. I do this also quite a bit before I ride. Helps recenter the SI joints, stabilize the sacrum a bit. 
I can apply a little lateral stress by widening my stance if I want to. I can also apply some unilateral stress by picking up one leg and doing it one legged. Then it gets really challenging and you add a lot more balance. So a bit of a segue in the weeds there. Hope that was useful. So what I'm saying is before your rides and before your workouts, use dynamic movement to loosen up these tight spots in your upper cross syndrome. Then train and use strengthening exercises to train the weak muscles and do it during strengthening. And then this is the, and some, so some of those movements are the, the modified prone Cobra I described where the hands are not under the shoulders. That's an isometric. That's pretty powerful, right? A straight up bridge pose with no stability ball or anything under the spine. If you can do that, that's a very intense, potentially isometric exercise. You can also make it a dynamic exercise, right? These are examples of how we can offset some of our movement patterns. Um, other examples would be anything that's going to open the posterior chain and work the posterior chain. So uh, reverse pec flies, for example, with small amounts of weight, uh, um, bent over rows, one arm or two armed, right? With proper posture. You've got to be conscious of your shoulder posture if you're doing rows, if you want to actually correct this postural syndrome. If you just go do a bunch of rows without thinking about it or without watching yourself in the mirror, the chances are you're going to default to the position that you already are using on the bike, which is most likely a protracted shoulder. So be forewarned, you got to be a stickler on the details when you're trying to make an exercise program that's corrective. This is just the way it goes. Details are life, people. Details are life. This is the sweeping statement I will make. Cycling and upper cross are reciprocal and magnifying. When you have upper cross that is cultivated in your off the bike life and you ride a bike, you're just going to spin it up and make it worse. If you have crappy posture on the bike and then you go sit at your desk, you're just reinforcing the same crap. So be aware of this and offset it. Here's the punchline. I will say that every single day you ride your bike, you should do postural corrections every single day. Now, some of you are probably rolling your eyes already press stop and that's cool, but I'll explain if you're still here. Look, man, you're riding your bike at least an hour a day. Most people don't put on a chamois unless they're riding at least an hour. That's not true for everyone, but it's common. And a lot of people I know are riding eight, 10, 12 hours a week. I have some clients that are riding 18, 20, 22 hours a week. Few that are riding more than that. If you're riding 12 hours a week and you go through that list of exercises I just gave you and you do one set of each, that can be done in probably five minutes. So if you do that seven days a week, that's 35 minutes of work. And that will probably correct. Initially, it won't make much of a dent, but if you do it consistently for a few weeks, you'll correct 60 or 70% of your postural compensations. I'm talking about someone I'm imagining in my head who's got a, a case of UCS going, but it's not excessive. They've got no, they're not to the point where they have soft tissue becoming calcified. They're not, they haven't been developing it for multiple years. If you've been riding a bike for 30 or 40 years and you've never done any postural corrections, you better get your ass in gear. 
because this isn't just about looking a certain way. It's about your performance as a human being. And I'll say that one of my greatest pet peeves is when a cyclist walks through a grocery store wearing normal street clothes, right? We're talking jeans, so you can't see the tan lines or the shaved legs or the leg tone. And we're talking a normal shirt, not a Criterium t-shirt with a bunch of sponsors on it. And they're not wearing a cycling hat. They're not wearing a Garmin watch. They're not wearing all the normal dorky stuff that bike riders wear. They look like a normal human. And yet, most of the women walking in that store will immediately recognize this man. I'm imagining this scenario in my head is a cyclist. And they'll pick up on it instantly because of the posture. And it's, it's not only the posture, actually, it's also the walking stride and the way that cycling changes your gait pattern, right? So this is something that's really basic, but not to be missed. Every other sport I can think of that is locomotive actuates a mechanism called the spinal engine. This is Kravetsky's work. Full disclaimer, I've only studied this a little bit, but the concept is pretty simple. You drive with the legs and the opposite arm reciprocates. And this uses the engine of the spine, the rotation of the spine to help drive this mechanism, right? I mean, this happens in unilateral sports like baseball also where you throw or swing about with the same side. It's just that it spins up imbalances if you're not careful. Just as we get imbalances in our sport, of course, someone who plays tennis or baseball gets the same problems, right? There's different problems that we have, but any repetitive sport will cause compensations and problems. However, cycling is the only one that directly overlays with UCS. That's the issue. There are other sports that contribute to it, but cycling directly overlays with upper cross syndrome. So most sports that are locomotive in nature, I'm talking about cross-country skiing, running, swimming, uh, race walking, what? Rowing would not would be an exception. Rowing's in the same category as cycling. Most of these locomotive sports, even to some degree, sports like tennis and, um, well, I mean, any team sports do basketball, handball, etc. They all do. Uh, the other exception, maybe, well, no, even water polo would count. These sports rely on the spinal engine in the sense that when you put a right leg forward, the left arm reciprocates. So there's a twisting movement, a spiral movement to the body that's natural and happens. And cycling undoes this pattern. It destroys it because the lower body is disconnected from the upper body because of the saddle. Now, we can have a little bit of that when we ride bikes out of the saddle, but even then it gets screwed up because when you're on a bike, when you ride out of the saddle on a climb, you push down with the right leg, you're pulling up with the right arm. So it is ipsilateral, not contralateral. You're using the same limb on the upper body. And this is why cyclists, when you ask them to march in place, if you do it sort of spontaneously, you take a herd of cyclists in a room and you say, hey guys, we're going to warm up for this weight routine. I want you to march in place. Probably over half of them will march in an ipsilateral pattern. That is when their right leg goes up, the right arm will go up. And this is backwards to what our primal programming is. This is backwards to the programming of gait, the most fundamental engram that all humans have. This is our survival mechanism, man. This is how we learn to persistence hunt, persistent hunt, persistent hunt hunt with persistence. So it's pretty fundamental and it's really important. If you can't walk, you are screwed. 
So if you're not hiking and running in the off season, you got problems. You got to fix your body before you go back to another season of bike racing. But cycling undoes this spinal engine because it disconnects the lower hemisphere from the upper hemisphere. And this is one of the other big challenges with, with cycling. This is why it screws up the body so much that and the overlay with UCS. These are two of the biggest problems. The lower control center, the pelvis lower cross. This is another whole topic. I will definitely unpack this. That'll be a future episode. Now that I'm thinking about it, there's lots to say there. So that's what's up. If you ride a bike and you drive something for a living, whether that's a desk, a car or a keyboard, you have to do postural offset for your cycling. You have to, I don't care how much money you make to ride your bike. If you're a world tour pro and you're listening to this, which I would be a little surprised if any of are, maybe there are, then you have a temporary license to possibly avoid some of this during the season, but you better look after it in the off season because your volume is massive. And that means you're doing damage to your body at a greater rate. You are creating distortions at a much greater rate because you're racing harder and you're doing more volume. If you're an amateur rider and you're wondering why the heck you would put all this time into this stuff and you're telling me to suck it because you just want to go ride your bike and you've got too many responsibilities like your job and your all your family stuff, I get it. My place here is to remind you that there ought to be a parallel track between the choices that support your global health and the support the choices that support your sporting health, your cycling performance. And these ought to at least be parallel, if not convergent, meaning the choices that you make to perform on the bike ought to be choices that also benefit your global health. Only those who are professional or on the cusp of earning a living or changing their lifestyle or their family's lifestyle through sport are justified in temporarily choosing behaviors and modalities that will diverge on this track, meaning they will enhance their sporting performance at the price of their global health. And that's only temporary. You are only justified in doing that on a temporary basis until your career, your professional career has ended. And then your onus is to undo the crap you did to yourself. Because I'm telling you right now, one of the greatest errors of man is obfuscation from nature. If you don't respect your body, you your entire life will come to shambles. If you don't have health, you have nothing, nothing. You can't do anything. You can't have sex with your wife. You can't have sex with your husband. You can't take care of your children. You can't provide for your family. You can't enjoy anything in life without health, nothing. So don't be that person who ignores their health until they manifest a big enough crisis. And if you think I'm being overly dramatic, take upper cross syndrome to its extreme and you will have shit tons of surgery and pain and misery. That's where it goes. So we're all going to pay one way or another. You can pay in little tiny installments of looking after your health now, or you can just make a giant payment and buy your doctor a new sports car and also endure a lot of pain and drugs and other stuff along the way. That's it. I'm going to hop off my high horse for the moment now and stop preaching all the things. I hope you enjoyed this somewhat spirited and feisty upper cross syndrome discussion. 
if you have questions, um, Instagram, man, Facegram really sucks these days. Like I like the platform. I think it does some good things because it gets messages out and that's good. I'm here to educate, not make content, but the messaging on that thing is driving me insane because I swear to God, people send me messages and I don't see them for three months. And that's not because I don't check them. It's because that thing is filled with bugs. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just too old. I accept that as a possibility, but I'll say this, just email me. If you have an amazing question about all this, or you think I'm full of crap, or you want to continue the discussion, send me an email. You can find my email on my website, colbypierce.com and hit me. And if your question's really good, then I'll just read it off on a podcast and we'll go from there. I've done it before. I'll do it again. Thanks for listening, everyone. Pedal consciously, pedal fast. Don't neglect your cadence. I'm not old school. I'm not old school. I am all school. Peace out. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers, a lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. 
that helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.